Hey, welcome to a very special episode of Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast by popular demand and also just our personal desire. We are doing a very special episode today on The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical with two very special guests. So stick around. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The theme song is going to have to go once we finish the initial book series because it is driving me insane and it haunts me in my dreams. <laughs> Let's start by saying hello. So Carter and I today are joined um, by two very special guests who we are very excited to have here. The first is, I'm going to go with Thomas first. <laughs> yep. Thomas Julian Simon Laub. Hi. Who is... A Broadway producer and graduate of a BFA musical theater program, which already makes him more qualified than either of us <laughs> to be here today. He has an undergraduate degree, so that's great. Also, hyphenated, super fan of this podcast, intern of this podcast, um, video editor, video editor, all of that internet Social video content marketing. you've seen. I think producer also because of the Zoom. Th- there's a level of producing. <laughs> Owns the unlimited Zoom account that we've been using for the past couple months. So big deal all around this guy. Kind of uh, seaweed brain central here. All right. (laughs) Um, And our second special guest is Jarrell Javier. Hi, Jarrell. I hope everyone listening to this already knows who you are because you're famous. Oh, my Um, God. Only among 14-year-olds who love the series. We get that, though. Okay, so that's the basis of fame, just to be clear. That's the only way to be famous. (laughs) I love it. I don't mind it at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so um, Jarrell, if you don't know who he is, um, originated the role of Grover and also Dionysus Dionysus on Broadway in the Lightning Thief musical. So basically a big deal. And we are so um, grateful to have you both here today to talk with us about this musical. I'm so stoked. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. All right. So let's start by going, we'll go in a quick little circle around our Zoom call. Would you like to start Carter? (laughs) To be perfectly honest, I slept on the musical for a while. I like heard about it when it was bubbling up off Broadway, like way back when. My my, like nearest reference point was like Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. And I was like, not (laughs) honestly super optimistic. But that was on me. That was my bad. Um, I'm a big fan of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. So take it back. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. I would not stand by the comparison. That was just like what I thought before, and I was wrong. I was wrong to think that I like really enjoyed it. I found it so winning. Large parts of the music landscape were just so so well in line with like what 
I imagine to be like the voices of these characters and specifically like we had a conversation on this podcast before either of us had listened like what we thought an appropriate genre basis was yes. and this is like exactly that nailed yes. it so that's all for now all right Thomas yeah I I think I first encountered the musical when when it was bubbling up off Broadway and then I really didn't hear more about it until the 2019 national tour. So I guess the second national tour, but then I didn't get the chance to actually see it until New York. And then Jarrell, I realized recently that we worked for the same company because I recently worked for Theater Works USA, who at the time was also producing Lightning Thief. So we're basically mm-hmm. brothers. Um, <laughs> but but with that said, I loved it. And Erica and I have been absolutely jamming to the prologue. And I think we compared it to Neon Trees all week. It was stunning. I mean, we love. I just, I loved everything about it. Wonderful. Hi, Jarrell. Hello. Um, yeah, no. So the first time I ever heard anything about the musical, I had a couple of friends who were uh, Texas State alums who did like the very, very first iteration of it. The one hour like bus and truck uh, <laughs> cafetorium kind of moment. Um, and so I never heard the actual music until they were doing it off Broadway because back then it wasn't on Spotify. I couldn't find anything on YouTube at that time. And so when I had heard it, it was here and there. I knew of Good Kid and I knew of like Grand Plan, but didn't know anything else because I couldn't find anything else on it. And then when I got the call to audition for it, that's when I like did heavy Googling. Like I was like a sleuth and found the full album. And then they had also sent me the full album via like a file folder. So that was all I listened to for like a week um (laughs) even after my audition was done I was just listening to the entire album and then I just kind of fell in love with it I mean everyone knows my story of like how obsessed I was with the books and I feel like everyone in my like in our age group that was kind of our Harry Potter because we missed the train on Harry Potter by like a couple of years and and while a lot of us obviously still somehow rode that train for a little bit um (laughs) Percy Jackson was right at our adolescence of like middle school and self-exploration and feeling like we were all outcasts. So yeah, that was my gig. Yes. Well, I can't wait to ask you more um, detailed, in-depth questions <laughs> about your childhood. Um, but, it's a hot mess, I, but I, already, I mean, I'm willing to tell it all, girl. <laughs> Percy Jackson, tell girl, all. Girl, we'll do like a, a spill the tea kind of moment. Um, I will say that I think it'd be very um, uncharacteristic of me to not be very passionate about a Broadway musical about Percy Jackson. So obviously I'm a big fan. I, um, like Carter said, I waited to listen to it for a very, very long time. I thought I would get a chance to see it. Obviously didn't, but I started listening to it like midway through the summer, the off-Broadway cast album, obviously. And I just was such a big fan. Yeah. Like, like Thomas said, we've been, oh, that line, the like, um, I didn't want to be a half-blood. That one we were like, like, I started with the whisper. And that was when I kissed her. And we were like, yes, that is exactly right. We, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I promise I sing better than that. Um, but like, <laughs> that truly, like, oh, wow. that is exactly the ex- the genre that we, that Carter and I have always been like, it has to just be all pop rock. It has to be Neon Trees and Vampire Weekend and all that stuff. Um, so I love that a lot of the musical sat in that place and and also kind of ventured into, like, more traditional like 
what a children's piece of theater would have with a variety of like a vaudevillian style number and like more contemporary musical theater and all of those different sounds I thought were wonderful and just mixed together. I loved the portrayal of Chiron as being just absolutely useless. I was really, that was my favorite part, honestly. I was like, this is so right. And I just in general thought it was such a delightful mix of being how it originated as sort of like a, a one hour like piece for younger folks. <laughs> and then also something that 20 year olds could enjoy a la um, a very Potter musical. I think that also that mix of audience is frankly the people who listen to this podcast. So I feel like I understand. <laughs> I'm going to start asking probing personal questions to both of you guys. So Jarell, you sort of started talking about this, but please give us more of that, that tea on how you started reading the books, who you thought your godly parent was as a child, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I was not much of a reader up until the Percy Jackson series. Like it really was the first book that I liked, period.com. And the only reason why I picked it up is because I was about to go into middle school. And, you know, when you're in the education system and it's summer, they give you like a list of books you have to read. And then you have to write like a one page summary report on it, blah, 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 blah. Um, And so I was looking through all of the book titles and I remember being like, none of these seem even remotely interesting until I saw The Lightning Thief. And then it started talking about Greek gods. And at that time, my fifth grade teacher, they always had those books of like just Greek myths of all those things. And I was always into the concept of like superpowers. So when I picked up Lightning Thief, I was really shocked because first of all, I didn't know that books could be like that. In my head, I thought books were boring. I thought books were lame. And I was just like, I'm not that girl. And then I read the book and then it just kind of really resonated with me. And the ironic part about it is that like, I didn't even see myself as any of the characters when I was reading it. I was such a third party observer the first time around. And I never would have ever even remotely guessed that I could be Grover, period. Because when I was reading it, I guess it's just also like when I was, you know, 12, that version of myself wasn't in line necessarily with Grover in the books. And I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm always into female characters. I always have been. Anytime I read a book or play a video game, I always want to be the girl. I always want to be the fiercest bitch on the roster. And I remember when I was reading through the series, the first thing that ever popped out at me or the first thing that made me go, whoa, that's real dope, was, I. what's her name? Uh, she had charm speak. That was her power. Hyper. Hyper. So when I was reading Heroes of Olympus, I was like, I could get so much shit done if I had charm speak. <laughs> I would like, I would get so many free clothes I would get so much free food. (laughs) But yeah, it was just, I think that the way that Rick, that Uncle Rick wrote the the characters, it's like by giving them all these superpowers and giving them all of these special other than traits, Mm -hmm. it almost highlighted their humanity, which is extremely hard to do. And as a kid who was trying to find their way through this world, that was everything to me. (laughs) So it's just like there was that sentimentality of just like, this was my gateway into the world of literature It was my gateway to the world of character building, of relationships, of representation. It was my gateway to a lot of these things that I now hold very near and dear to my heart as an artist. And furthermore, in in an extended metaphorical sense of that, it also gave my career everything. Like my career is really only lightning thief at this point. So it's just that book series, man. It just keeps on giving. That's all. I love everything that you just said. I'm not even going to try to reply to all of it. There were so many lovely things and things that I agree with also, especially just for how useful it is, is 
introduction to any kind of thing that you do if you're like oh this was my introduction to this concept or like my introduction into teamwork or like relationships yeah I think it's just it's because the underlying theme is just so universal right like I mean that was when we were doing press and we were getting trained on how to do press like we were taught that like if you're in doubt and you don't know what to say go back to the central theme of the story we're trying to tell which is the things that make you different or the things that make you strong and that concept has so many ways to interpret texas state is so crunchy granola but like the four years of my training over there like (laughs) the emphasis has always been to be the best version of yourself in that the reason why you're going to be successful is because you are not trying to be anyone other than yourself and that you are utilizing Mm -hmm. and honing your idiosyncrasies to the best of your abilities because you're the only one who can do what you do Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways expanding past artistry and expanding the world of musical theater like in any discipline that's all we can really ask for right and that in the moment that we stop comparing ourselves to others that's when the real work begins that's when the magic happens i think the reason why it resonates so much with other people is because it's the number one human insecurity of just feeling like you're not good enough of feeling like you're not worthy of feeling like you are less than and he gave us these characters that told you like, no, you are perfect just the way you are. And that what you think may be a deterrent to your perfection is actually why you're perfect. And so that message as a 12 year old kid, especially when you're a person of color, when you're queer, when you're gay, when you don't know what the hell you are, that's fucking empowerment right there. You know, like that's the kind of empowerment that he gave a lot of us when we were growing up. And And I think that's why it resonates with a lot of adults too, because a lot of adults are like, damn, I wish that was the empowerment I got when I was 12, because then I wouldn't have to be unpacking all of the shit that I've spent thousands of dollars in therapy trying to unpack. (laughs) Yes. Also, like we say this all the time, but the future of fandom is is really just, it's just incredibly gay. So gay. The gayest. Gay, 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 gay. Like everyone who follows us on Instagram, like we see you, like we know you, we hear from you. I just want to say that that was, that was not only the best Percy Jackson ad I've ever heard, but the best Texas state ad I've ever heard as well. I mean, go go Cougars, baby. It's Bobcats, ma'am. How dare go you? Go Bobcats. Country granola Bobcats. That's what we are. I wasn't going to say anything, but Thomas and I are alums of the University of Michigan. So just shout out go to um, BFA Musical Theater Programs, coexisting happily in, Give it up. in this world. Carter, would you like to ask the uh, next question? Yeah, we, we wanted to ask about like your experience landing the role getting into it but something that came up for both of us when we were like listening through the soundtrack was like you know George Salazar like particularly recently has come to be like such a big name and especially in light of what you just said about the message of the show being about honing your uniqueness and your idiosyncrasies as the key strengths here we I I would be curious to hear about what it was like to to adapt that out of what he had done with it in the past? I think um, it was hard at first. I'm not going to lie. It's not only really nerve wracking, but it's a lot of pressure when your predecessor is someone who already is a big name and is a little bit well-known or a little bit more well-known than you are or a lot more well-known as you are. Who am I joking? Um, <laughs> and I think the my whole mantra, so if we're going to like rewind to crunchy granola, right? Um <laughs> My whole mantra ever since maybe about like junior year of college is just to do the, do good work, make the goal doing good work because 
I am such a specific type, I've had to essentially redesign my way of thinking because I was prone to comparing myself to others. When I was auditioning for programs, it was before the wokeness of the musical theater industry. It was before we were conscious <laughs> of racial problems. Yeah, the wokeness in quotation marks. We, we, got, <laughs> we got work to do. It's a lot better now, but we got, we got lots of work to do. And we had much more work to do when I was auditioning. So mm-hmm. I had come in with not only a lot of baggage, but with a lot of racial hangups of being like, I have to be so quirky and I have to do so many different things because I am like Filipino Mm -hmm. and I have to show them that I'm not like the other girls and all that shit. Mm. And so somewhere along the line, I had to switch the the psyche and figure out like, all right, let's get down to basics. What do you really want to do? Like what, how does this, how does this character live in your body? How does this character live in the world that we're creating? How does he walk? How does he talk? How is he in relation to Percy? How is he in relation to Annabeth? Trust your instincts and then let's have fun. Like, let's play, right? So that was always my thought process. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to do good work. I wanted to try and, and Stephen Brackett, our director, was so kind and so caring and so helpful in this. Because I was doing so much research on the show, I was like, well, I know that George did this or well, I know George did that or well, I know. And he was just like, I don't give a fuck about what George did. Like <laughs> he was great. He was great then. This is this is your version of Grover. And so whatever feels right to you, like it'll be great. If it's too much, we'll pull it in. If it's not enough, we'll pull it up. Like I just want you mm-hmm. to do what you want to do with this role and not worry about what he did. And so for him to give me that permission, that's really what unlocked everything for me. And um, obviously I had prior knowledge of the books. I had an idea of what Grover was when I was reading him and who he is in as an essence. I don't like to talk about types because I feel like that's a very dated term in the world of musical mm-hmm. theater. I'm an essence person of like Grover's ability to be an open spirit, to be someone who has the best intentions but may not always be the best executor of said intentions, Aww. and to be someone who leads with his heart. Yeah, I don't remember what the question was, but that was uh, great. That was a wonderful answer. I also have to shout out the fact that it's I think it's so ironic that we have like the original Broadway Grover on our podcast because this podcast is so like not anti-Grover, but like so neutral on Grover. Like we just never talk about him. I mean, <laughs> like Grover is just such a big dopey energy. Like, yes, he adds to the story in a lot of ways. But nothing he does is ever super integral to the to the like the forward Be motion taught. of the story. But if we actually take him out, the story will still progress. Like Amen. You, the plot will still thicken. But he's just a little. He's like a fla- He's a flavoring. He's like subtle. Yes. yes. Oh, I have, I have one more question for you before I kind of jet on over to Thomas here. But if there are like one or two specific things that you would like to see from the Disney Plus show, which is you know so early on in development, what would you like to see from it? I don't want Grover to be white. Um, mm. I ask that they are a person of color. It would be even cool if Grover was like a little androgynous like that would be a really cool thing i think it was just so powerful when grover was played by two people of color specifically two filipinos in that a lot of fans came up to me on the tour and were just like i've never seen anyone with my nose on stage before which is a huge thing for filipinos like our noses are like such a touchy subject because of just like white colonialism it's just it's a whole thing and that representation of just being like this is a like a main three character like this is the poster for the show 
and having someone that is not white, it allows kids who see that show to know that they are also allowed to be their own narrator and their own protagonist and that they are allowed to be at the forefront of their own movie that is their life. The empowerment that it brings to kids is extremely, extremely important. And so I just ask that if if my only legacy in this franchise is that Grover is not a white person, I would be happy. My mantra or my mission statement as an actor has always, always been to become a symbol of what is possible. I just want them to be like, yo, he did that and I can too. That's all I care about. Yes, we um, we here at Seaweed Brain um, endorse no white people being on the Disney Plus series. Please take that into writing. <laughs> Seaweed Brain podcast endorses not a one white person being on this show. We would love that. We, we know it's not going to happen, but wow, would that be fun? Also, we have talked like in the limited conversations we've had about Grover we have talked about how he is clearly queer in the original book series yes, like yes. there he is he is androgynous AF he constantly transcends norms I think that Grover should be played by a queer actor of color but then again I think everyone should be played by a queer <laughs> actor of color there's not a single character in this book except I don't know we could see Luke maybe and like Zeus himself Zeus has to be white However, for everyone else, let's not. It's crazy too, because I love that you said that because when we were creating the character of Grover, like before the tour, when we were in process, Brackett came up to me and was just like, hey, I'm I'm open to the idea of Grover being a little bit more queer. In my head, I told him, I was like, yeah, well, when I was reading the, the books, he, there's no way he only swung one way. Homeboy was all about oh, the yeah. inner spirit. He dated a tree. <laughs> right. She's like non-binary <laughs> at its finest. Pansexual. Thank you. <laughs> so yes, I agree with all of that and a can of Coke. Heck yeah. All right. On that note, T- Tomas... You sweet heterosexual man. Hello there. <laughs> so Thomas, I, I want to hear kind of your thoughts, um, both on the musical structurally, since it had an interesting journey of sort of starting as a one hour and then them expanding it. And also about sort of how the process of it getting to Broadway impacted the creation of it, impacts the experience of watching it, impacts financial business side success of producing a show on Broadway. Go ahead and just, you know, start talking. Sure. Um, So first off, structurally and story-wise, and my interpretation of how how the story feels on stage, obviously, Jarrell, you're going to know 1,200 more times having been in that room and see, having seen how that evolved. So please feel free to jump in and tell me tell me where I'm misinterpreting. But um, I think it's especially difficult to bring a piece from either an animated movie or a book on stage, on stage in particular, even more so than a live action movie, because you're competing against the movie that everyone has seen in their heads. But with that said, I think that when the first thing I do structurally when seeing a piece adapted from another medium to the stage is I look for where the intermission is personally and where where does the action stop? So where do we kind of get off and, and kind of see the action ramping up and then come back and we're in the thick of things and ready to get resolved? Because I think what uh, we can so often overlook is intermission is so crucial because we have to leave on such a high and the conflict is at its almost peak and we only have like 25 minutes, 30 minutes to actually wrap up that whole conflict. So it, it's so hard, even building a musical from scratch to find the right point to break up the action, build the intermission in, then with a story that is, is, already, is already done and you're adapting for the stage becomes even harder. It fails so often. So for instance, with Frozen, the Broadway musical, <laughs> immediately the question is, okay, we're talking Frozen, where is Let It Go? 
Let It Go has to be at the end of Act One, except for in the movie, Let It Go is about 15 minutes into the movie. So how are you going to do an hour and a 15 minute of Broadway musical on stage to end with a song and finish out the show and the rest of the night in under an hour when you you were only 15 minutes into the original movie with two hours left to go. So it just becomes so difficult. So immediately here, it's very interesting that it started as a one act because personally, in my opinion, I think the story makes a ton of sense as a one act. But then when it evolved into two acts, in terms of overall structure, I grouped Lightning Thief in with the community musicals and the, mus- the musicals about a community of folks. So the Music Mans and the In the Heights and et cetera, et cetera. And then I-, I was very intrigued how the end of act one came with the start of the quest, which seemed like a similar time crunch to me in terms of, I alluded to Frozen and Let It Go, in such that the book, we get the bulk of the action after we go on the quest. And if we bring in the the, the cursed <laughs> film, I think of the two-hour film, what, 90 minutes were post-quest to 30 minutes pre-quest? It, it felt yep. like it. perhaps it was seven hours after, after the quest, but in reality... Like, I couldn't possibly tell you anything. No, I actually, I blacked out. It could be any amount of hours... <laughs> There's no way to know. But with that said, I I think the same thing that uh, kind of time crunched act two by spending so much time in all the immediate amazing kind of reveal stuff. And Mm. Rob, composer, and Go Blue, Garblar, University of Michigan graduate. For the longest time, I did not know what the fuck y'all's mascots were. I thought Blue was the mascot. I was like, that's fun. The Blues. Yeah, go Blue. We're the Blues. I was like, so confused. What's a Wolverine? I've never seen one. The Wolverines are extinct is the problem in Michigan. They went extinct. Well, and that's that on colonialism. global warming. (laughs) But with that said, I just, bringing back to kind of the structure of things, I thought it was interesting that we have Act 1 to kind of lead up everything and introduce all of these complex relationships. And by the time we do that and we finally get to the perceived payoff and we're already ready for an intermission because there's no easy way to start the quest and then leave it off. We're not going to get to Medusa and then cut for act one. You know what I mean? So books to stage are especially tricky. Jarrell, was there anything, how, how did you feel about that in terms of timing? It must've been certainly some conversations in the room. Yeah, I mean, so when I had joined the cast, it was already like, it was already pretty much set, right? Like we did some switcheroos and stuff. We did like, we, we worked out some music changes and like there were minor changes, but for the most part, they came into the process. Like we have like 80% of this done, blah, 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 blah. It's hard when you're part of a show or I guess the hardest part about being an actor is like when you have things about your show that you disagree with I personally find that I have to keep them at bay or at check because I'm a strong believer of like if you are making fun of the work your brain doesn't know that you're joking your brain will will make fun of the work and for me, I can't do that because I make fun of everything. Like, that's my personality. So if I click into that or I dip into that reservoir, it precludes my work from taking it seriously. So I tried not to do that in the process. However, post everything, my thoughts, um, I think that the, the choice to do Killer Quest as the ending was yeah. a really great choice. I might 
get shit fired for like saying this, but I think that we were severely underproduced in that like I just feel like if we were just given money to really make the visuals of the show more stunning, I could forgive the fact that we are showing, not telling. Oh no, we're telling, not showing because we couldn't afford to show you. So we have to tell you. you. Yeah. And it's like, and it's, and it's, the thing is, it's like, it's none of our fault. It's, it's no one's fault necessarily. um, Or at least I don't know how, the business side of things are. So I, I don't want to say something that is ignorant or uneducated. So I, what I will say is that I feel like we, there were things about the book that we've had to re- use as a resort because we were not able to do it in a way that was more conducive to the story, if that makes sense. So it's very like, we have to show you the relationships between these characters via words and via like, obvious storytelling because in order for us to do it in a more nuanced way it would require money and that was just something that we didn't have a lot of at the time of production so so like my whole thing is just like um like the cut songs right like my hot takes on the cut songs are i love them (laughs) um they're not really hot takes but i think that like act two right i wanted i wanted more of the camp situation in act two so i thought if we had time and we had the money and all that stuff like granted this is an ideal situation you're gonna have to just like suspend your disbelief and not like hate me for this but this is me talking if like rob ever hears this i love you rob um (laughs) this isn't to like this isn't talking (laughs) shit about anyone's work i feel like i have to say that as a disclaimer anyway my whole thing is just like i wanted more of the guys back at camp in act Mm. two I feel like because if we're going to group this as a community musical about these sh- these people and the relationships between them, we can't just focus on the trio when this also affects the camp and the other campers so deeply, right? So if we had put Pick a Side as the opening of Act 2, transition into the thunk, 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 thunk of nice. Lost, it would be like Pick a Side, into Lost. I think that that would have solved was like, here's what's happening at camp. Cut to here's what's happening on the quest. Now we have a much more fully realized version of the, of the global problem, global meaning just the people that we've been introduced to of, of the consequences of what's happening with the bolt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then if we move back into act one, I think there's a lot of things that also could be cut. I love another terrible day. Don't get me wrong. I love that number, but the thing that another terrible day achieves could have been achieved in another way that wasn't as exhausting. I must agree. I also agree with that completely. completely. I love that number and we worked terribly hard on it and I gave it my heart and soul every night. But it is one of those things where if we were looking at it from an objective point of view, I think that what it achieves is not enough payoff for it to take up that much time because it's a long song. It's a long production number and the payoff is just storytelling wise and moving the plot forward. I I would want to have something else there that maybe lifts the curtain a little bit more on another part of the story, i.e. maybe how Percy's dealing with all of this, i.e. how Clarice and the other campers feel about this. Because if we're going to, again, go off the fact that this is a community musical, I want to know more about the community. And Dionysus, as as great of a character and as iconic as the actor who plays him on Broadway is, like, I just feel like it could have been those seven minutes, though beautifully done, 
could have been spent um, in a different way. No, that I, I agree. And I mean, what I hear you coming back to, which I think is interesting, is the idea that the musical set itself up structurally to tell the story from A, from first word of the book. We're not, we're not really assuming knowledge here, whereas some other adaptations come in with a wink and a nod and saying, you, you know what Wingardium Leviosa means. We're not, going, or we're not going to pretend like you don't. We know you know the backstory. But Lightning Thief set out to really say, okay, if you're coming in and seeing this for the first time, here is period. Here's everything that's happened. Granted, also, like, just to give some insight to people who don't know what's happening behind the table, like, there are so many layers to how and what you can fix at that point in the process. And there's only so much time that the directors and the creative team had. So in a lot of ways, I'm sure that if we were given two month, uh, two years of, of pre-pro or a year of pre-pro, if we were allowed that kind of luxury of being able to mm. pay these people so that we could do more in-depth and more just progression in, in the process... It would. It's a different story. However, the fact that they did all of that with all, with what little they did have in terms of time, in terms of resources, in terms of even fucking support, like there, we have been the underdog since the very beginning. Hell yeah! And the and yeah, we can analyze it and we can like think of all the ways that it was better. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like they did. They took a pile of shit that nobody cared about because that's what their like others' actions made it seem like they didn't care about it. And Rob, through his hard work and his fucking persistence, turned it into the show that has now moved hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of people. Right? Yeah, I, I agree. And and that kind of brings us back to the idea of thank you for bringing us back to the idea of the audience and I, the idea of who is this for and how does that factor into exactly what Absolutely. we're doing because I think one of, the, one of the things that I certainly really wanted to talk about was the diamond gem sapphire of a social media presence that the lightning thief has and how that idea plays off not only the story and how it was constructed and how the show was constructed but also how the show is marketed and kind of sold to an audience. I find it profoundly interesting that Lightning Thief decided to be the Gen Z musical and decided to be clapping back on Twitter. Other shows can't even figure out how to log into their Twitter. So it, it's just interesting to me that that was the decision because the show decided to appeal directly to the current reading audience, which is very interesting. It's one of the reasons that Lightning Thief came to Broadway originally and decided to make that leap and also created the the dichotomy you're talking about of we're on Broadway, but are we being underproduced and are we being undercut by a lack of financial resources, is that the move to Broadway was predicated upon the idea that if the show was on Broadway, it would receive higher licensing fees later. And is there a way to go to Broadway and have been on Broadway and, you know, try to try to lose as little as possible and then make it up in licensing later, which is such a, <laughs> I think, diminutive thought. But certainly, I'm, I'm sure that came Jarell's up freaking out. <laughs> more than a more than hundred times. But it's very frustrating on a number of levels because it feels like there was this unique, supremely interesting, untapped 
like fuller idea of how the musical was produced that we didn't get to see. There is a version of this musical that was 15, 20, 25 million dollars on Broadway, which is so, so different from the version we saw. But we could see that version with the same social media, with the same actors. I hate to open a can of worms, but I do have to ask you, Thomas, like, do you think there was a version of this musical that was like $25 million because of the fact that the movies failed? Because if the movies had done well, we would be at a completely different stage as far as like Percy Jackson franchise and all of those things. Like we can't just do the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child and be completely sold out in the largest theater on Broadway every night. No, but here's the thing. I I actually disagree. I think we could. I think that the films were the aberration. And I think the musical, and even on social media, I think I think the original tagline was, no, we're not the films, dear yes. God, or something like that. Something amazing. <laughs> but with that said, I think that the, I mean, in another world, the films were something completely different. Why, like, why, why is there possibly not Percy Jackson land at Disney World yet? You know what I mean? Like, that, that's a failure of franchising. <laughs> but with that said, I think there is totally a version of this that is Shrek the musical in terms of scope, DreamWorks level in terms of scope, that is Disney level in terms of scope. And it should be, and it deserves to be. And I think the team of people deserves to be supported. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't say, but I I think there was a level of underproducedness that (laughs) Jarrell referenced that falls at the feet of sparring ideas. Multiple members of the team had different goals in terms of why the show was going to Broadway, which I think did not serve the creatives and the actors and the amazing designers who did literally so much and created actual monsters on stage with the scenic budget of a living room play. You know what I mean? Which is amazing that that happened, but also why did that have to happen when this is a franchise that could be yeah. Massive. In another world, this is the most produced musical in schools every year for the next 20 right. years. Definitely. I just want to say, like, I'm not trying to get blacklisted. So <laughs> I have no idea what the producers' situations were. But I will I will agree to the fact that, like, in Broadway, money has a lot to do with success sometimes. In that a really bad musical could get really great reviews if it has a lot of money behind it. And inversely, a really good play with no money can get really bad reviews. In my opinion, I just think that there was an opportunity, a missed opportunity to perhaps zhuzh up what we had. And in comparison to the other musicals that I had seen in our season, I feel that we were just out produced out Out flashied i I know what you mean yeah it's it's that idea i think we're saying exactly the same thing jarell and as much as there is nothing that is the fault of someone i think the the fault lies at conflicting ideas of of why and what the show was setting out to do especially on broad and that's the first thing you have to talk about right that is like almost always the case with 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 a musical right it's the conflicting ideas on a creative team and especially an adaptation yes an adaptation but with something like this if the expectation was this is and if the expectation still potentially is that this is going to be the most produced show in the u.s by high schools, middle schools, and maybe colleges for the next 10 years, then why wasn't it treated as such in terms of financial support and financial resources, if that's the expectation? So I don't, I think there was a bit of incongruity there. No, I I, I totally agree because I feel like if they had given us 
the full out fantasy, like everything, blah, 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 right? They will have shown the full versatility and the full scope of what this production is capable of in that you can do it with nine people or you can cast everyone in the theater department to play one role in the show and it'll work out. You can do it with a bus and truck or you can have it on Broadway with $25 million behind it or you can do it what we did on the tour, which is something that was a little bit less than that. It would have served its versatility. It would have shown what is possible. And I think that it would have absolutely served every single high school in this country because every single high school has different money levels. And it it has bangers on bangers on bangers. Like, come on, who doesn't leave the show without humming at least a single tune? I didn't want to be a half-blood. Yes. For the longest time, (laughs) DOA was... At, like washing dishes, DOA, different verse, different chorus, different key. It was like whatever came out. It's a beautiful song. And you know what? Like I'm not bitter about it. I think the show was perfect, just the way that it was. And I'm very grateful for the impact and the, the opportunities it's given me. However, if we are going to play this like hypothetical thing, I just think that we could have we could have put a little bit more flash, a little bit more pizzazz. And I think that if we did that, we we would have received very different reviews. And that's all of it. Yeah. And that's on entertainment <laughs> Yes. There we go. Yeah. That was incredible. This was, and this has been Spilling the Tea with Jarrell. <laughs> hey, girl. That, spilling that mead, uh, that kombucha. Not the spilling mead. that homemade kombucha with Jarrell. I hate who I am, but it is. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great we, podcast title. I hate who I am, but here but we here are. here we are. Carter, would you want to ask our last question? Yeah. We we really want to know and need to know before we end the podcast. Um, d- did you meet Rick? <laughs> I did not. However, so when we were in San Antonio, his parents came and watched our show. Oh. And my ass cried when I met them. I was like, oh I told them, I was like, uh, <laughs> I was like, I just want you to know, like, how much your child's books meant to me. Um, <laughs> and um, yes. like, it was very that. And it was like, it was really cathartic. <laughs> she was really sweet. Her, his mom is very kind. Hold on. I'm going <laughs> to. Oh, and then shit. the day after we opened the musical on Broadway, the next morning, his agent, who is this kind, kind woman, I love her so much, she sent me a text. She was like, hey, I got your number from Ashley. I just have a little message from you from Rick. Did I save it? It was just like very kind words. Just Uncle Rick sent sent a message to her because Aww. he knew that I was a fan of the book. So I, at the very least, he knows who I am. And I did uh, the same spiel to his agent. Like, I met her and I was just like, uh, you were responsible for my childhood. Thank you so much. I love it so much. It was amazing. And her yes. daughter told me that I was one of her favorites. And I was just like, oh, my God, you're kind of related to Rick, too. And you liked it. Thank you so much. This means so much to me. So, it's, you know, I never got to meet him. Um, and a part of me wants to believe that he got to see us when we were in San Antonio. And a part of me wants to believe yeah. that he was there on Broadway with us at some point or another. But he doesn't yeah. He doesn't announce anything. And he says that he probably won't watch the musicals. And I understand because he's still writing. And when you're writing, yeah. you want the characters to be your own. But he did send me a mm-hmm. message. He was really kind and he was really sweet. Um, 
You basically met him, honestly. Like, that counts. That's more than we can say. Rick knows you exist. That's a big deal. That's all I care about. (laughs) (laughs) Like, acknowledgement of my existence. Thank you guys literally both so much for being here. Thomas, you're going to come back on this podcast eventually because I know you're rereading the Heroes of Olympus books right now. Um, Jarell, you are welcome to come back any freaking time. Uh, Let us know. I'm down. (laughs) This has been so fun. And, like, it's just... Well, it's also just, like, Percy Jackson. Like, who the fuck doesn't, like, talk about Percy Jack, especially as an Literally. adult when you can say fuck like come <laughs> on that's the thesis statement of this podcast it's Percy Jackson who the fuck doesn't like talking about Percy Jackson Period. So yeah, anytime, well, literally, if I'm available and I'm not doing anything, like I will hop on and give you my very unsolicited and unasked lengthy opinion. That is the <laughs> definition of a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Welcome to podcast culture, where you just talk and talk into the void, but you feel better after. You do. So, I feel great. Great. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Um, I'll see you guys next week to start off the last Olympia.